Welcome back, friends. It is Monday, October 30th, and Chapo Trap House is coming right back at you. Um, we are joined today by the author Vincent Bevins, who has a new book out, If We Burn, that takes a look at uh, basically the, the, the decade between 2010 and 2020 and the sort of global pro- protest movements for democracy around the world and uh, some of the un- like, you know, unintended consequences and failures of those movements. Vincent, it's, uh, it's great that this horrific confluence of world events has led you to be the perfect guest for this week's show. So welcome back. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been, it's been strange to be relevant for this, all of this stuff to be relevant again. Yeah. Well, I mean, b- before we get into, into the book, um, you are in London right now and you were just at a, a massive protest uh, demanding a ceasefire um, in solidarity with Palestine right now in London. I, I heard there was like about how many people were at that protest? I mean, I saw the photos on the bridge. What, how, about how many people were there? I mean, I think you have to trust like the people with cameras and like helicopters for these kinds of things. I heard half a million. Uh, I certainly like when I was on that bridge, Westminster Bridge, that was a small minority of people. But I think you can't really take the the shot and yeah and like we thought we were we thought we were protesting for a ceasefire but then everybody else said we were doing something else which is i think related to the problem with this uh, that i talk about in this book but um yeah it was it was quite a lot of people i think it was the biggest one they've had so far here in the uk so yeah half a million people in london over the weekend hundreds of thousands of more in in major american cities and european capitals we're, we're faced again with uh, like a, a, a mass protest movement that, it, that wants something, that wants to change the behavior of the governments, of the citizens that, of the countries protesting these, these terrible things that the government is doing. But like we, we run face again into the reality of like the limits of protest. And I guess I'm just like, what, is, what was your perspective participating in that march um, over the weekend? And just like how you see um, the protest movements uh, turning out to demand a ceasefire um, like, how does that fit into your narrative? Or like, do you see any similarities uh, from the cases that you talk about in your book? Yeah, I think one thing that I that becomes kind of clear after looking at all this stuff for four years is that protests are fundamentally communicative actions. They really are like demonstrations. They really send a message, uh, usually to existing elites. Um, and so for the sake of what we were doing this Sunday, I thought there was real value in going out there and being counted. And like, I don't say this to be just like disparaging, but basically I think I went out there to participate in a photo shoot. Um, Like we just went there to be like, yes, this many of us are opposed to this thing that is happening. And I think the clearer the the demand is, uh, the more likely that, you know, that that it's an effective action because it really is, I think, sort of like a, a demonstration. Now, the book that I wrote is built around a specific kind of protest, a specific phenomenon that becomes really important for moving history forward in the 2010s. And I write the book as if it is the most important thing moving forward in uh, history in the 2010s. And these are mass protests that become so large that they actually dislodge or fundamentally destabilize uh, existing governments. And so not only what I participated in over the weekend, but what's been happening in the Arab world is very reminiscent of 2011, right? So like, what happened in, in Egypt recently led me to like get on WhatsApp or Signal and start texting my Egyptian revolutionary friends, the people that I met for this book, and, and be like, do you think that this is like happening again, kind of? And they're like, absolutely. And one thing that was really fascinating um, and sort of, I think, important about the what became Tahrir Square, what became the Egyptian revolution in 2011, is that a lot of the groups that came together to put to like create that protest movement and ultimately occupy the square and topple the government, came together through pro-Palestinian solidarity. Like they understood what they were doing as fundamentally pro-Palestine and anti-imperialist, which is why it was so strange and shocking to them when like CNN represented their movement to the world as something that was pro-Western and pro-American. Because the way that they understood it was democracy in Egypt will always mean support for Palestine, like an overwhelming majority of Egyptians opposed normalization with Israel, the overwhelming majority support Palestinians. And so the CC government that's been in power since the 2013 coup really must not allow for that particular type of democratic uprising or that sort of particular type of uh, democratic message to be broadcast to the world. And that's exactly what happened the other day, right? So he tried to create protests that he could control and they spilled, they spilled once more into Tucker Square. So like this really gets back, like all gets to a couple of the fundamental dynamics that mattered in, the, in that decade is that media can sort of misrepresent 
most protests if they want to, and it's very difficult for these particular types of protests to respond. Um, and in that region, in the Arab world, um, the existence of the particular type of Israel that you do have sort of makes democracy very, very threatening. Real democracy in the world uh, is very, very threatening to the particular power configurations that you have there, basically Saudi and Israeli hegemony. I mean, one of the one of the things you 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 lay out in the book is many of the many of the things that the, the people, for instance, who who occupied Tahrir Square and overthrew their government of the things that they wanted did not come to pass. And like, you know, this in a lot of ways, your book is about like sort of the thwarted democratic ambitions uh, that the, the world felt in the 21st century. And like, right. I think, you know, if whether you were a citizen of an Arab country or a citizen of an EU or America, it seems like the Democrat, democratic will, at least as it regards to a ceasefire in Palestine, is overwhelmingly on one side. But our government, right. but the governments are completely on the other side. And like, you, you run into this, they run into the wall of like the limits of protest because like they still control all of the police and security forces and right. the governments. I mean, like, I, do, you, do you write like, is it is it hard not to uh, communicate a level of despair um, in covering topics like these? Well, hopefully it's not despair, right? Because what I like the cases that I concentrate on like the most in the book and there's like 13 that I look at and then I come down to 10 that are really this type of mass protest are not ones that are kind of ignored by existing elites because we had that like before. Like in 2003, I protested against the war in Iraq. Um, it like was very meaningful. I think we, we did send a message, but ultimately they didn't, they just didn't listen. What happened in the 2010s very many times is that protests actually got so big to really disrupt and, and remove governments or to fundamentally destabilize them, put them in a position where they were willing to give up something in order to stay in power. Now, in that moment, in the moment in which these mass protests create a power vacuum and opportunities to either enter that power vacuum or to uh, extract concessions from uh, the governments, the particular type of protest, which became quite common, quite you know, almost seeming natural in the 2010s, did a very poor job of extracting um, concessions from states or did a poor job of entering the power vacuum. And often what happened was somebody else went into the power vacuum, whoever was waiting in the wings. Often you would get sort of imperialist actors from outside the country. But if indeed, like, the problem is just that tactics were slightly mismatched with the ultimate goals of so many of these movements, what appears to be sort of a pessimistic story becomes an optimistic one quite quickly, because there's clearly, like, desire, there's clearly people willing to take risks. Um, there's enough people that have been mobilized to, like, actually cause real problems for existing elites, and often, like, you know, a march sends a message, but often doesn't really cause real problems for existing elites. So if you're just going to if the issue is just matching tactics to goals, then I don't think despair is the answer. But in the short term, I mean, I don't. I mean, in the short term, watching what's going on in Gaza is horrible. I mean, I don't. I don't see a way out um, that is not awful. So in the short term, I'm certainly not feeling great. But in the long term, I think that there's there's a lot of things that could happen. Uh, would you say that, like, when you talk about the specific kind of protest and like the fact that they uh, did dislodge their governments, but then like what they got in exchange for that was perhaps not what they initially in intended. When you talk mm -hmm. about sort of like the, the, that disparity, do you think your book is, could be called as skeptical of the, uh, the tactic of horizontalism in terms of like organizing mass movements? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, at least in when it comes to this particular moment that I just described, right? So like the particular type of response to injustice that became really common in the 2010s, especially after Tucker Square, but you know, it was it was gaining momentum even before that is the apparently spontaneous, leaderless, digitally coordinated, horizontally organized mass protests in, in public squares or public spaces. And you can see why, you know, either intentional horizontalism, like when when movements like really believe that there should be absolutely no leaders or, or any division between who's in and out uh, or the just sort of concrete horizontality when you just like actually just that's the situation you get in a place like Egypt after decades of neoliberal decimation of civil society. You can see why that that is really uh, effective. This package that I just described can get a lot of people in the streets, right? Like you like because you can say to people, you saw this post on the Internet yesterday, you're going to come tomorrow. You don't need to exactly know who's behind this, or what we're going to do. You just need to be mad about that thing. Um, and so it really works in that phase in getting people out. But it doesn't do a great job in this in these opportunities that were generated to either seize power, like in Egypt, they could have like, if there were like a revolutionary party, they could have seized power in January, 2011. 
and like overseeing the, the transition to whatever the next government might have been. Um, but like a protest, especially one that is like configured like this, can't really step into a power vacuum. Um, and it often can't even really sort of elaborate a set of demands like the kind like you can't say to existing elites, if you give us A, B and C, we will stop you know, shutting down the country. And then, you know, after that, you know, maybe you only get A, maybe you only get B, maybe C, you leave for another day, but then you can go back and rebuild stronger. But often in that case, there was no one to speak to, to what could like, you know, in a way that a union would negotiate, like, and, and a strike. We, they would say, okay, you know, we really wanted this in the future. We want this, but we'll go back to work. If you give us A and B, that could often not be elaborated, but it's not because this form is bad at everything. It's because this kind of like, this particular type of response to injustice ended up being so much more successful than anyone had really planned for. And in many, many of the cases across the decade, like the organizers did not plan for like that initial success. So yeah, like I think a lot of the people that I, that I spoke to and I did like 200, 250 interviews over the last four years, a lot of them say, we wish that our, our movement had been less horizontal. And I think that is like, was the consensus of, of a lot of people looking back, but it was about this, this, this opportunity, not the like the sort of a priori theoretical analysis of whether or not it's good to be at the same level. Just this this particular thing could not be done by the particular type of thing that we had put together. Uh, the last time you were on was when your book, The Jakarta Method, came out. And that's yeah. very much a book about, you know, horrific state repression of people that grew out of your, your experience living and working in Brazil and like the threats right. made by the Brazilian right wing, you know, like the, the Jakarta. Jakarta is coming here as a way of like liquidating their sort of left wing or union or just anyone, anyone that doesn't fit in with their, their vision of power. How did the, how did this, how did the, how did this book come up, come about? And like, what was the idea that led you to, um, to, to do all this research and to like d- dive in to these movements over, over like the last decade or so? Yeah, it was really, I mean, I was, I started working on this book before the Jakarta method even came out. So the end of 2019, I was already putting this together and it has to do with my own experiences in Brazil, basically. Uh, in June 2013, I was very, very close to one of these mass protest explosions that was unexpectedly successful and then generated a set of opportunities that the original organizers could not take advantage of. Um, so this has been a real like concern of mine, I guess, personally, and kind of for everyone that I know that lived through the same thing for 10 years. Um, and in that case, who entered the vacuum? I mean, the original organ- the or- original organizers of the protest were left anarchists, leftist anarchists and punks that wanted to lower public transportation, uh, called the Movimento Passi Livre, the MPL. And who enters the vacuum? Who enters the streets? Who takes advantage of the chaos and this weird like energy that has been unleashed into the centers of the the, the biggest cities in the country? Um, is what is the be- the beginning? I think now recognizably of the far right movement in Brazil, the like people that come out um, into the streets in yellow football, yellow and green football uh, gear, you know, like the the national soccer jersey, um, and then become clearly like the beginnings of a far right movement in the country. And then a group of kids who are funded by U.S. Um, libertarian free market organizations, uh, either had studied under the Koch brothers or had given, been gotten getting a lot of funding from right-wing organizations in the in the country and they step into that vacuum and they pretend to be the MPL they 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 create an organization called the MBL with the intentional uh, goal of tricking people and they do and this is something similar that happened in Egypt um, between 2011 and 2013 so for me it was like personal I lived through this I like was one of the foreign journalists that like was problematically and foolishly euphoric at the moment when it all exploded and it all looked so great and I was one of the like people living in the country that had to deal with the sort of slow horrors that unfolded, not necessarily as a result, but in the wake of that strange explosion. Um, there's a good bit in uh, the Brazil part about um, Brazilian punk groups and Brazilian yeah. punk bands. Uh, there's some great, uh, great band names here, including uh, Bra- this is the English translation of Portuguese brain invaders and an yeah. all woman punk outfit known as the, and uh, known as anarchic menstruation. Yeah, Did you talk yeah, about yeah. Uh, how brain Men's invaders thrust. and anarchic <laughs> menstruation work into your narrative here? Yeah, menstruação anarquica. Yeah, like uh, punk is a huge part of what, I mean, punk brings anarchism back into the like political scene in a lot of countries. Um, and, and certainly that's true in Brazil. So a lot of the people that put together this group that I just described, the MPL, the Movimento Passa Livre, had been from like punk bands. Another guy was in a band called Class War. 
they had all like worked at indie media. Like I think you're like you remember indie indie media, right? Like that would have been your moment on like in the internet, right? Do you remember reading the indie media? I, I actually, actually, I don't remember that. I was, so it was a big, I wasn't cool enough. It was big. It was big for me. Like it was like nineteen. I would, I'm just barely old enough to be to remember, but it was like 1999, 2000, 2001. It was a very like anarcho uh, inspired sort of early internet, you like digital utopian um, thing that came together to co- to cover the Seattle protests. And yeah, like a lot of the Brazilian um, activists that put together this set, they were like. They all had like nicknames too. So one guy was, was guy's name is Legumi or Vegetable. There's like Pedro Punky, which just means like Peter the Punk. Um, and yeah, they had they had uh, they had gotten to know each other really really well over over eight years, like organizing together. And they all had like similar goals, and they all had sort of the same ideological assumptions about you know what they wanted to get done in Brazil and how they wanted to organize. But what they didn't plan for was like millions of people entering the streets as a result of what they had put together. And all those new people had very different ideas about what the protest was about. Uh, they had not like learned the ethics of a mosh pit, like over like 10 years of like vegan. What about food, not bombs? Did you? Were you yeah, no, food, no, no, food, I know food, not bombs. Yeah. They basically had a food, not bombs also. It was called the Verdurada, which is like, you know, like veggie fest or something. And they all had like ethic. They all like knew how they were supposed to act on the streets. But then these new people came and they just didn't care about these rules. They just like, sort of like um, bulldozed over their original left anarchist ideals. And they like didn't know how to respond to it. And like nobody did because in 2013, um, the government was um, the very popular and uh, overwhelmingly elected social democratic president Dilma Rousseff, who like came up as a dissident fighting the dictatorship. Like she wasn't Mubarak in Egypt. But when this explosion happened, like foreign journalists that were even more clueless than me started saying like, oh, it's the Brazilian spring. They're doing, they're doing Chakrier Square in Brazil. But like, you know, there was like a popularly elected president. This didn't make a lot of sense. So yeah, so the punks uh, and like the fans of Mengstrasso Anarchica, Anarchic Menstruation, um, in this moment, didn't know what to do with what they thought that they had been trying to achieve for, for so long. I mean, did, did this all eventually lead to the Lavo Jato case and the removal of the you know Brazilian uh, government? Yeah, indirectly. So a lot of elements are born on the streets in that weird like sort of pressure cooker or cauldron of energy of June 13 that ended end up ultimately removing um, Dilma Rousseff from power in a parliamentary coup in 2016. Um, the Congress, like again, Dilma and, Co- and Congress, like don't know what to do. They're trying to they're freaking out, trying to like give the streets what they want because they don't really know what the streets want. And like the streets are asking for all kinds of contradictory things. One thing that this one thing that does happen is they change the laws. Um, regarding jurisprudence in Brazil, which allows a set of guys who were pretending to not to be far-right uh, judicial actors, but were far-right judicial actors, um, to start to work behind the scenes to put together an anti-corruption case with the ultimate goal of getting Lula in jail. They did get him Lula in jail, and it became clear later that they had been working with the U.S. government the whole time. And then this, this group MBL that I told you was like, like the libertarian youth movement, um, who had been on like, you know, summer camps in, in the United States on like how to do a tea party in Brazil, they led to a position of, you know, quote unquote leadership because they were, they were like, they were all about leading protest movements. They were all about uh, conquering power. They led a movement that sort of was pro Lava Jato, pro impeachment. And then they all, many of them were elected in the same election that uh, put Jair Bolsonaro in power. Uh, you also mentioned that it did not go unnoticed among Brazilian elites when I think in 2008 or 2009, Obama referred to Lula as, quote, my man and one of the most popular politicians in the world. Like, how is that received right. among uh, elites in Brazil? I mean, like, cer- certainly they're aware of how few, a few that of them there are and how many people uh, would like to see some reduction in income equal- inequality in Brazil. Yeah, the Brazil, let's like, as a very simple way to describe it, it's right. I think it's correct to say that the Brazilian ruling class is pro-U.S. and the in Brazilian media for sure. Like really, like a lot of Brazil. I mean, I worked in like Brazil's main or like one of the most respected newspapers. They really look to like the New York Times, like for, especially in foreign policy stuff. They really look to the U.S. as a source of like cultural inspiration. Um, they like they want to be respected by the U.S. And then of course, like the Bolsonaro like movement is like rabidly pro-U.S. They like love U.S. They want to be more. They like are like more loyal to 
the U.S. under Trump like than even most Americans. And this is like not true for the traditional left in Brazil. The traditional left in Brazil views the U.S. as like an imperialist power. You know, Lula's brother was tortured by the dictatorship. So was Dilma. The U.S. you know was responsible for backing the the coup in 1964. Um, and so, but yeah, but like in 2008, nobody could really question that Lula was had been doing very, very well by the standards that you would judge like a social democratic president, like improval ratings were incredibly high. Everyone had gotten better off. Rich people had gotten better off, but poor people have gotten better off too. So that's a victory for, you know, in, in, in the like, for the very low bar of like Brazilian inequality and things sort of deteriorate um, in Dilma's uh, presidency, like relations with the U.S. get worse in her first office. And then especially after uh, the annexation of Crimea uh, in 2014. Just as long as we're talking about Brazil, like what is going on with Brazil right now? Because we've got Lula. Lula is back in power. He's back. And he's he's one of like the major world leaders speaking very forcefully about what Israel is doing in Gaza right now, calling it a war crime, I believe. Yeah, he did. Well, you know, he just said he just said uh, like a few days, a few days ago, he just said this is not a war. This is a genocide. So I think he's even more forceful. Yeah. yeah. Um. So like, yeah, like how, how do relations between the United States and Brazil stand now? And how do and how does how, how does Lula stand in terms of like Brazilian public opinion currently? Uh, he's doing, I think, quite well considering like the very, very difficult circumstances that, under which he took over. So like I spent most of this year um, in Brazil, either with the Landless Workers Movement, which is like a radical, radical land reform group, or I spent the last like, couple months in Congress, like interviewing the most like radical and extreme Bolsonaristas who all like really love the United States. They all get a lot of their like ideological cues from like right wing YouTubers or like TikTok stars in the United States. But um. When at the end of the Bolsonaro government, uh, at the end of last year, there was kind of a confluence of U.S. and Brazilian, U.S. and Lula's interests along like anti-Bolsonarista slash anti-Trumpista lines. Like the Biden administration kind of saw uh, Lula as an acceptable next chapter after Bolsonaro. Um, Bolsonaro was really, really uh, aligned uh, in the at least in the eye of like Democrats in the United States with like a kind of like Trumpian authoritarianism and like. Bolsonaro wanted everyone to think that. He really cultivated that uh, image. He like really wanted people to call him the Trump of the tropics. And so that democratic transition did happen. The United States did not try to help a coup happen, which might have happened in other moments of, of Brazilian history. Um, the Bolsonaristas tried to carry out many coup attempts. They did, they did not succeed. Lula takes over, but then it becomes quite clear again that this is a guy who believes that he was put in jail by a secret U.S. operation to destroy Brazilian industry. Uh, he believes the U.S. is an imperial power. And so while he wants good relations with the United States, he made it pretty clear pretty quickly. And I think this was on purpose, even though like in the U.S. media, they act like he was like, oh, these are gaffes. Whereas I think like he was really setting out his position on a set of uh, issues. But he did not want to join the war effort in Ukraine. Uh, there was a lot of fights over that publicly and privately over um, Lula's position on Ukraine. He did not want to join like a chorus of criticism from North America for countries like Venezuela and Nicaragua. He's kind of like, no, leave me alone. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to participate in this. Um, the United States um, has been trying to overthrow countries in this region uh, for a very long time. And so in like relations are not as good as they were at the beginning. But what he's trying to do domestically is like just like put the country back together. And like it's hard to remember how like because it's like things are kind of normal again, but things were so bad last year. Like it was really like you were living in fear at all times. There was people dying everywhere. Like Sao Paulo was like a post-apocalyptic movie for most of the pandemic and the years afterwards. So the country is like slowly like realizing that it can like live again, I would say. But um, and also the United States has slowly had has slowly realized that Lula's like, oh, yeah, he's kind of a, an anti-imperialist. And like uh, his family was tortured by the regime that we that we, we supported. So like maybe he's not going to agree with us on everything. Moving from Brazil to uh, Europe. Uh, can you talk about how uh, you're, you're reporting on the Euromaidan movement in Ukraine and like how that began and just like a, just a brief history of the Euromaidan for our listeners who maybe aren't aware of it or, or have forgotten about it by now? Yeah, and this is another one. This is one of like the second wave of the of the protests in the 2010s. Like in there's a lot in 2011 and then in 2013, you had Gezi Park, you had Brazil and then you had uh, Euromaidan in, in Ukraine. And l all three of them had some characteristics in common, which were like hard to be hard to explain or for that were hard for the global media to, un, to understand. In all three cases, the far right shows up and it varies how much of a role they play in like shaping the final outcome. In Brazil, it takes a while. In Ukraine, they, I think, do take play a role in shaping the final outcome. 
Uh, in all three cases, like football hooligans uh, matter, like to the final outcome. And in all three cases, like you really have to distinguish what happens at the beginning from what's happening at the middle and what people say they want versus what happens. Because like imposing a single narrative on what happens in, in Maidan, I think just, just like doesn't work. Like you have three distinct movements, I think. Initially, you have a small group of basically Western facing uh, liberals, um, a lot of which that work for like NGOs funded by the West. And like, you know, that's not like, I don't say that, say that in a conspiratorial way. They, they were like, hey, we were funded by uh, NGOs from the West. Like that's how we have to get, that's the only way that we can exist. And this first group was um, coming into the streets in protest of Yanukovych's decision not to sign an association agreement with the European Union. Now, that association agreement did not have popular support in the country. Only 40% of Ukrainians, more or less, wanted it to be signed. But, and then this is like really, really common across what I call the mass protest decade, you have a police crackdown, which causes way more people to come into the streets. And the people that come into the streets, like, have a much wider set of concerns and they're a very different group of people than the initial um, sort of liberals and, and Western facing sort of like quote unquote civil society actors. And they often want a more just economy in Ukraine because, in the, you know, since the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine's been absolutely decimated. Like everybody in Ukraine has a real right to be upset about the oligarchic structure of the economy, um, the absolute decimation of the country uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. But then, like, that just kind of goes on for a while. And I think there's kind of a way in which it's like in Brazil, like, no one knows exactly what's supposed to be done with this. Like, Yanukovych is elected. He was elected. Um, there's a lot of people in the square. Um, and, you know, and then you get a, a moment in which armed elements, often uh, on the far right, um, establish hegemony over, like, kind of self-defense forces in the square. And these have a different set of views than the people in the second group and from the people in the first group. And while they never like become the like majority of the people in the square, I think they punch above their weight because they're armed and they're organized and they have like a clear set of ideological goals. And they end up, in, to some extent, I think, shaping the way that Yanukovych actually does fall, the way that the new a new government is formed. And a lot of people in the east of the country believe that their uh, elected president, the person they voted for, that you know even if they didn't like very much, they he, they liked him more than the other guy. They come to believe that they've had their uh, uh, government taken away from them. And so, like, I guess if, like, my approach uh, in this book, like, has value, I think it's, like, in putting these elements next to each other, putting, like, everything in chronological order and just showing, like, what happens. Of course, in, in Ukraine, like, the position of the U.S. is very important the whole time. They're signaled the support for minor protests. Oh, and then, all, all, of course, Russia's reaction matters as well. And this is like, again, this happens in so many cases across the decade. Uh, either opportunities are, are created to sort of change geopolitical circumstances according to the perceived interests of some power external actor, or people just react very quickly. Um, and yeah, and like that, I think fundamental difficulty in separating out all the different things like has plagued a lot of the understanding of my nonsense because people like, Oh, like everyone wanted Europe. And it's like, well, yeah, but their idea of what Europe was was like very different. Like they wanted to be rich, but the actual like original agreement was not that popular. And then the replacement of Yanukovych with this new government, strange sort of ad hoc administration was very, very unpopular um, in half of the country. Like the actual Maidan protest itself um, only had about 50% support at the height of its popularity. But like we get told that it was like one thing. Uh, and I just think like, across the decade, like it never makes sense to say that these are one things. You have to sort of look actually at what happens historically in chronological order. And when you when you look at these, like starting with uh, Tunisia, which kicked off the Arab Spring, if you look at these things in chronological order and like you, you, you set up like the, the characters and like a sequence of events, like what is the pattern that emerges? Like what, 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 yeah, what, are, what are you diagnosing here? Well, like it all like, I mean, sort of this book is uh, like structured around one question, which is how is it that so many mass protests led to the opposite of what they asked for? And they don't all lead to the opposite of what they asked for, but a lot do. And I think the answer, like the only way to answer that question is like in the story itself. I think like different people will come to the book with like different sets of experiences and see a different answer emerge from the events. But certainly putting these things in order allows you to see that like the ways in which one one thing inspired the next thing. And I think this could be really good and, and, and also quite, um, quite complicated, quite, um, 
quite problematic uh, at sometimes. Um, so, for example, the in, in in after the fall of the government in Tunisia, the Egyptian revolutionaries did not think that they were going to get enough people on the streets to even claim, like even ask for the fall of Mubarak. But it seems pretty clear that looking to Tunisia and what had happened there really mattered for inspiring people to come out of the streets. And then with like this very, very inspiring, like beautiful scene of Tahrir Square um, that, you know, the whole world uh, is, is observing for 18 days, you get a lot of movements around the world which are like explicitly trying to copy this. And that includes in the United States, like Occupy Wall Street was Adbusters magazine saying we need to do a Tahrir Square in New York. Um, that includes in Western Europe. And like places where like the political systems are quite different, like because ultimately what happens in Egypt is the military seizes power. Like and that's like probably not what you want in the U.S. context in 2011. But like Occupy Wall Street works for other reasons, which I think are like unexpected, like it gets a message out. But you see like across the decade, the ways in which solidarity is transferred immediately across media, especially social media, but also through traditional media, like people are inspired by each other. But then there's also this strange slippage where. There's also like a copying and pasting of tactics, not only from countries where conditions are very, very different, but after conditions or after it's been proven that it didn't even work in the original country. So like the Tahrir model continues to spot, inspire um, movements to copy it after like the Sisi coup in 2013, after it becomes clear that like this ended quite poorly. Another interesting element to your book um, is, is a part where you talk about how like protests, marches, people walking in the street carrying signs or chanting slogans. This is relatively a modern invention. Like you, you yeah. said, like people in the 16th century did not express their dissatisfaction with like, you know, the local government by turning out and marching in the streets. They would just sort of eject the tax collector from town. Right. And like, so like is, is protest is like, is that a tactic that is the result of the, the creation of modern media where you can see images of like thousands of people and now it can be disseminated globally almost instantaneously? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I think that, I mean, you don't see protests. I mean, you see things that we might call protests, but they weren't the same thing. You would see like bread riots. You would seize the like supply of food and like demand that it be sold at local prices or you would like to go like, hurt or kill some local elite. But like protesting in the way that we understand it now only emerges with mass media. Um, and it's like, you know, because I think that like a lot of people talked about the impact of technology in, in the 2010s and like social media is the technology they're talking about. But like also photography is quite a new and strange uh, like piece of technology. I think like I think we're still sort of integrating uh, into like human society, how to deal with like the ability to see things that aren't in front of your face, because for like the vast, vast majority of human history, you could only see things that were in front of your head. Right. And but when you could only see things in front of your face, when it makes sense to go to the square of a major capital and sort of demonstrate to the nation because the nation didn't exist yet. And no one was going to see it except for people that were like literally walking in front of you. And that's why I come down, like I said at the beginning, that these are fundamentally communicative actions, I think often fundamentally media actions. And that like makes a lot of sense. Like when I said, like, if I was trying to be on the bridge, uh, Westminster Bridge on Sunday and send the message that like we're against what's happening right now in Gaza, then that makes sense. But when, number one, the protest stops really being a protest and creates revolutionary conditions, there was there's often like this strange, like short circuit in this decade where they like kept sending a message to somebody, but there was no one there. Like there was no one else. There was no one to complain to anymore. Like the thing to do was to like, go and become the the elites or go and become the people that were in charge of the situation. And then like, and this is a problem that I think that we've all seen like play out like over the last few days, like I certainly did, is that fundamentally communicative actions, fundamentally media actions rely upon the reproduction of the images and the messages in media. And like, if in the case of Tahrir Square, global media like agrees with you, they like what you're doing, they want to say that it's good, they'll find a way to say that it's good that is like, that jives with their own ideological assumptions, like, you know, CNN showing up and being like, you know, Egypt wants to be like America, whereas really they would have loved to probably be more pro-Palestinian, anti-neoliberal. Or, and this is what happened with me this weekend, if dominant media don't like what you're doing, they'll just find the three worst examples, like the three people on the streets, whether or not they're like actual protesters, they're put there by MI5 or the FBI and be like, oh, that's what they're doing. Uh, that's a pro-terror protest. Oh, like this is, you know, oh yeah, that, like those one million half a million people 
on the streets, even though no one that was there like experienced this. Like it was just all about uh, anti-Semitism and, and support for Israel. Because like fundamentally, it's like it is always in some kind of dialogue with media. Um, yeah, it's it's in that dialogue with media, and it's certainly something we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> yeah, that like you know, for instance the hundreds of Jewish Americans who were arrested at Grand Central Station uh, right. this past weekend for uh, demanding a ceasefire and in solidarity with Palestine, uh, they're anti-Semites. This is violent Jew right. hatred. Right. But like one of the things we've been talking about is like, obviously, like, yeah, the media doesn't like the, the message of these protests and they will find any way to make it seem like it's something other than it is. But like that only goes so far. And one of the things Felix and I've been talking about is just being somewhat I don't know, impressed or slightly, uh, I don't know, slightly elated at how badly that this is translating from like the direct media message to public opinion. And it's just like, am, am I wrong in thinking that like it, the media is running the same script that they always do? But on this issue, as far as Israel's ongoing assault on Gaza, it just doesn't seem to be working. Well, I think I was also impressed with that action, the one at Grand Central Station, like the Jewish Jewish voice for peace one because like i mean that has nothing to do with what i did but like if there were lessons sort of offered at the end of my book like they seem to have like learned the same ones like it was quite clear like they're all like they all identify like as jews they're all wearing the shirt they're like we're here for this reason we are this group of people you can't say that we're not you know this, like we we are they're very clearly organized as this group and with this message and i think that was like i thought that was quite powerful and like yeah i think you're right i think that like because who's the media, right? So the media is a confluence of the traditional sort of mainstream outlets, which still play a huge role, newer, like, you know, more independent outlets, like you guys are like media, people, everyone on social media is media. And like, like, recognizing that it's a terrain of battle doesn't necessarily mean that like the old um, sort of Washington, uh, sort of like uh, White House aligned outlets are going to win. And I don't think that like, I don't know, I mean, maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm in I mean, we're all in sort of different quarters of media, but like, um, it doesn't mean that they're going to win. It just it just means that it is kind of, it is kind of like will always be a terrain of contention after the action to be like, well, what was it? And the more and like certain actions, I think are are harder to lie about than others. Yeah, and I guess like a, to the point about message discipline, I think you know one thing I've been impressed by is like the the ceasefire now is the demand, and there being like a real. Uh, discipline behind that message and not getting bogged down in debating uh, or litigating uh, which atrocity was done by which side or getting into the whole history of Israel-Palestine. And again, like that history is important and it's legitimate, but I feel like in this current context, in this current moment, when public opinion is so clearly on the side of, at the very least, ending the killing in Gaza right now, it seems to me like a calculated strategy to get people to uh, debate the minutia of history and and you know warfare tactics. Yeah, because that's a gotcha, right? Like you can't get a half a million, you can't get a half a million people on the street in London that are all going to have a perfect answer for you know the evolution of Hamas and the relationship between the PLO. You know, like that. Like if you if you make it about everything, then you'll be able to find someone that slips up or is stupid or says the wrong thing or is like I said, like just put there by MI five to say the wrong thing. And yeah, I, I agree. Like that that. The more, like, and this is what happened in Brazil, like, yeah, not to go back to, like, the main thing in the book, but, like, one thing that be, made it really, really untenable is it really became about everything. Like, everyone was invited to kind of bring whatever cause they wanted to the streets, like, literally whatever. And so the government, like, the government, which was even, like, trying to be sympathetic, didn't know how to read the streets. Uh, and so the media ended up kind of picking and choosing the things that worked best for them. But, like, after spending, like, years on this, I, I looked at, like, the JVP action in, in uh, Grand Central Station, I was like, oh, that's like really well. That's like not only like good, but it's quite inspiring. You bring up like the kind of like it, it's a glib summation of, of the thesis of the book in, in the form of a tweet. But it's basically like a five step process. The, the first three are get people out into the streets. Media covers it. Now, basically, everyone is in the streets uh, Four question mark five better society. And right. it's that fourth thing that everyone <laughs> seems to be tripping over. <laughs> and I'm wondering do you see a contrast in your mind between these kind of massive and seemingly spontaneous outpourings of popular uh, democratic protest that have not been successful or, or, or been like, I don't know, in, successful in a monkey's paw, weird, ironic, sick kind of right. way. 
And for instance, the recent labor actions by, let's say, the WGA or UAW, who did had goals and then like they brought they got concessions out of the people they were organizing against. Like, oh, do you see a how do you how do you delineate like the difference between those two approaches to like how to how to fill in that fourth question mark spot that no one knows? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you answer like I think it answers right there. I think that's I agree exactly with what you're setting up. Like, um, I was going to do an op-ed about the the strikes, but I like Gaza happened and maybe I won't. I don't know, but but like one of the things that a lot of people came to me at the end of the book saying was, okay, you know, there was all kinds of different lessons to be learned. And, you know, that, that question mark is like, you know, there's four questions marks. Those, those are big, right? Like crackdown causes people to come to the streets. Now you're in a position to like force the government to do something else, but who's going to do it and what, what are they going to force them to do or who's going to take over? And what a lot of people told me from like Egypt to Turkey to Chile to Tunisia is organize, build collective action power when it seems like nothing is happening, like build in the off season, basically. Like create bonds with other human beings that have the same vision for a better world as you when it appears like there's nothing going on. Because when history comes knocking, whether it's in a mass protest or an unexpected war or some kind of an opportunity, it's really hard to put together an organization in the moment. And I think the UAW Labor Caucus, like, no, sorry, I think the UAW Reform Caucus is like a perfect example of that. Like it was like dedicated people that had a vision for change in one of the most important unions uh, in the Western Hemisphere. And they did it like in the like seemingly dark days. I think they started in 2017. I don't know. You know, don't get mad if me, I'm wrong. But I think they, you know, they started when like it wasn't like about to be time to, to, to put on a huge strike. But that paid off, you know, when conditions changed way down the way down the line. Um, and they were able to use like democratic mass organization to ask for something that was going to help people, you know, in, in a key uh, moment of possibility. And like, you know, like the book is like, centered around um, cases which are strangely unsuccessful because that's the strangest like thing. But like in the cases where there is success, there tends to be a strong working class movement. Like in, in, in the cases that are the most successful compared to the others, they tend to have autonomous, strong unions that play a role at that, like in this key question mark, question mark, question mark moment of being, of saying, oh, this is what we want. And this is like, we're going to pressure you th- to do it because like, a whole labor union can very quickly make it very difficult for the government of a capitalist economy to operate. Like, you know, again, not like casting aspersions on this activity, but like walking back and forth across a city doesn't actually really cause problems for a government unless they feel embarrassed, but they don't feel embarrassed. If they can just say that you're a minority, that's no problem. If you get labor unions saying like, we're shutting down the economy now, unless this happens, that's really powerful. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the people in like my generation moved from this kind of like moved in the same direction towards you know away from sort of believing that like the perfect riot would lead to the promised land and and, and and starting to think okay well how can we build like organized power how can we build structures that will be capable of acting both flexibly and democratically come what may and it's the give and a take of when you're like a protest movement is based around a vague but like widely held opinion that people yeah, yeah. have such as that capitalism, imperialism, and racism are wrong, and we'd like to see less of it in this society. Or even worse, like, corruption's bad, or crime yeah. is bad, or, like, even democracy is, like, you know, what does that mean? Like, some, you know, in some some of these cases across the decade, I would call them pro-democracy, and someone's like, well, that's just, they just inserted that because it sounded nicer than what they were really all about. But no, I mean, like, I mean, what, what, there, there's a difference between, like, uh, asserting democracy is good and we want more democracy in American right. society. Right. And there, but there's a difference between that and, like, the UAW, who is like, we would like more democracy in our workplace. Like, we would like more yeah. control over, like, the output of, of our labor. We would like, a, like, terms that, that we get to, we, we have power that we can leverage over you. And I guess it's just a difference between organizing along, like, a, a, a feeling of real and necessary discontent and, like, an opinion that people have that's, like, you know, not reflected in the media and organizing along things like the workplace, which by definition kind of constrains the argument or like the demands that you're making and the message. Well, it's also going to cause problems with people for people with power. And like, yeah, that's, yeah. That's and, like well, I mean, and you and you have your hands on the choke points of a right. couple really important areas yeah. for capitalist exactly. production. Yeah, because like, you know, back like back in like the, the era of like peak 2011, kind of like uh, pro spontaneous sort of horizontal thinking. 
people would like say, oh, well, like uh, these, these protests have a floating signifier. And that was like supposed to be very cool and theoretical and post-structuralist because it was like, oh, it's about like whatever each person brings. But like a friend of mine in Brazil put it like pretty well. He's like, look, if you ask the government for a bunch of stuff and some of the stuff is culture war stuff and other stuff requires elites to actually like lose power or lose money, you're going to get the culture war stuff. They're not going to give you the stuff that actually has costs for the ruling class in a given society. They're going to pick and choose the stuff that they kind of believe um, will get them out of this jam. And, you know, Ukraine is, a, is an example of this. Like the people that went to the square in late 2013 for anti-oligarchical reasons that, you know, they believed that they could get economic justice through this often found themselves really, really disappointed when basically a new set of oligarchs took power and delivered some like cultural quote unquote benefits to some of the society, which, which alienated uh, much of the rest of society. So like, if you're asking for things that really cost uh, dearly to existing elites, whether it's the United States or wherever, they're not going to want to give it to you. And so you have to be quite clear about that and make it clear what, what, what will happen if they don't. Uh, and uh, 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 yeah, yeah, that's, that's the answer. Well, that goes perfectly into my next question, which is that how, how did you process the Black Lives Matter protests uh, that happened in this country during uh, during COVID. And then also, like, there's also a number of anti, like, you know, sort of anti-COVID lockdown protests as well. But in terms of Black Lives Matter in, in particular, is this not, like, a fairly good textbook example of getting the cultural wins in, in exchange for anything that would actually stop the police from killing people or, or inconvenience anyone in power? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, certainly I don't think anybody, like, I don't think anybody um, in real positions of power, like lost anything right in the U S I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, like in every, in every case, in every case in this book, there's the, you know, the hope that somehow the like legitimate passions or the legitimate concerns behind any one of the uprisings can somehow serve as seeds for something larger to grow up, grow out of them in the future. Like that, you know, in the, you know, in the short term, we don't know, but in the long term, maybe this really group builds into something uh, greater. But yeah, like I was in Brazil, I was in Sao Paulo, in 2020, as it all started. And I watched, I think, the same way that a lot of other people in Brazil did, thinking, okay, wow, that's quite a bit similar to what happened here. I hope it doesn't go the way that it went here. And it didn't exactly, it didn't exactly. But um, I do think that there was, there were moments when, I mean, because, I mean, I don't put uh, 2020 in the book because I wasn't there. And I've already, worked, I already started working on the book and I don't know it that well. But as, as far as I remember, there were moments when, like, quite a lot of the United States was behind what was happening. There were moments when, like, there was serious, like, there was a pretty clear message to the government that there was discontent around this issue. And in that moment, who knows? I don't know what could have been possible in that moment. What happened, as, you know, as we all know, just kind of kept going, right? And, and as it kept going, um, it became easier for sort of, as you say, like, easily deliverable, quote unquote, wins to be offered rather than sort of the kind of things that would have cost elites dearly. And I think, you know, you would have to like, I don't think that there's any way, like, I think it's like silly and like counterproductive to like think about who could have done something differently in that moment. Cause you'd have to like imagine an entirely different set of organizations and structures. But like, I think, you know, there was a, there was a real moment there when like a lot of people were behind the thing. And I think that a lot of people in power were afraid uh, of losing it, or at least afraid of, of, of what was happening on the streets and would have been uh, pretty amenable to doing something as a response. Have, have you have you encountered like in, in, in your book tour or as people uh, process this book, certainly in a moment of uh, another moment of mass protest, have you have you gotten reactions from people who feel disillusioned or are, are you worried that people might take from the book a message that like, hey, like it's, it's all just going to lead to fuck up in the end anyway? Like, what's the point in protesting? I haven't got that from anyone that has read it. I've got I've like I've had per people like hear like third hand what kind of what it might be about and be like oh does that mean that you're not supposed to do anything and i was like no 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 it's not it's not not at all but it is and like indeed like the people that spoke to me and these are people that lived through often horrifying apparent failures the you know 200 225 interviews that i did these are people that sat down to share with me like really difficult stories um of things that seemed to go well and then really did not they say they sat down with me precisely because they had not given up, precisely because they thought it was worth discussing what happened, sort of reconstructing this history and learning from it. And like, again, I, even as individuals, like most of them are still quite active and just doing 
in, in doing something. It just might be slightly different. So, um, yeah, like I said, I, I think what is apparently pessimistic starts to look quite optimistic when you realize if, 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 um, if, if what the book points towards is correct, that it's kind of a mismatch of tactics, that we're sort of a, there's a lag in us catching up with what can deliver real change uh, in like this new sort of global environment and new media environment, then that's not so difficult. Right. I mean, if there's the real if there's the obvious desire to improve or change the global system, people are taking risks and then it becomes a question of like fine tuning the actions. Then I don't think it's I don't think it's discouraging. I think hopefully it's it's the opposite. And out of the out of the, the various countries and protest movements that you covered, was, was there any one of them that was the most surprising to you re- researching it, both in terms of like uh, it being dispiriting or perhaps um, inspiring or like offering the best examples of what people should keep in mind. I mean, like, and the thing is when you say like offering best examples for like current protest movements, it's hard to take examples from protest movements that are about different things and in different right. countries. Right. You know, but like uh, out of these, like, was it like, what are the examples that stick out in your heads or something that was like surprising for you to, in, that you discovered in your research or something that would perhaps like change your way of thinking? Yeah. And like, I think like when, if there is like a lesson, one of the big lessons in the book is like every country is really actually different and like you can't sort of uh, like do with the media. Not not that we're doing that now because I, I think that like it's, it's a question that can be answered really in an interesting way. But like every every country like really has like unique conditions and and, and like in, interesting things pop out of them. I think I was like um, I was quite surprised in, by my time in Tunisia because like I kind of had the vague idea of what the, you know, the so-called Arab Spring was. And the, the issue, you know, the way it was sold to me is like, oh, you know, just kind of like it just like arose from air, right? Like, spon- like pure spontaneity. And like, I don't, in the book, like, there's like, you know, I want to get to like annoyingly theoretical, but like, I think spontaneity doesn't make like really exist. Like, people are always doing re- something for a reason, whether or not they're like having a party meeting and then deciding or they're like texting their friends to decide to do it. Like, everyone does things for a reason. But in Tunisia, like when Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire, nothing had to happen, right? Like other Tunisians had set themselves on fire and then nothing did happen. It was a group of like real organizations that had, again, like really gotten to know each other beforehand, um, really had a plan, had often like struggled and like learned lessons already, had already been like trying and failing and trying again for years that like got the protest to take off and then got the protest to the capital. There was a left-wing party, uh, like a, a really left-wing party, actually, a big union organization. There was like networks of unemployed uh, people in Tunisia across the country. There was like a, like a Maoist sector in the middle ranks of the largest union uh, organization in the country. There was like professional organizations like lawyers. And like, it's all like real things. It's never just like, ooh, like, you know, history, like sets off an explosion of all the people just rise up. It's always like concrete organizations, concrete people. Uh, and like, I don't know, just like, uh, I don't know if that's like uh, exactly the, the answer you're looking for, but it was just like cool to get to know all of them and see like what it really was and what they were all trying to do. And then like Chile ends up being like the most successful, right? So Chile is one where unexpectedly and strangely, like the generation of 2011, like the, the student leaders um, that had uh, organized anti-neoliberal protests back in like the year of like the global explosion uh, ended up becoming the government in 2019 through this weird kind of, yeah, they call it the estallido social, like the social popping, the social explosion. And then you get like, you know, this formerly like left autonomous uh, indie rock kid who's now the president, like uh, Camila Vallejo, who was like, you know, longtime member of the communist party, like uh, in, one, in a powerful position in his government. And like that, I think is a, there's a lot of elements there which sort of add up to a initial success, but then uh, you know you get into government, and then you have well, to yeah, now they, and the, but they didn't pass that constitutional uh, no, they did the, not. The referendum no, they did not. to change the, the Chilean constitution to get rid of all the uh, the Pinochet stuff. No, they did not. Um, and like that, yeah, like I said, like the kind of the best you can do out of this kind of thing is win power, and then after you win power, you might screw it up. Like that's that's baked into the whole thing. Like after you win power, like the best you can do is get to governing, <laughs> and you might really fail. Like a lot of you know the Brazilian left is like does not love the Boric government. And uh, I think it's entirely possible that it like will, will fall apart. But if you like look at like how these things can go well, at least like a spontaneous mass explosion where like yeah, the whole city is shut down. Um, that's one of the best outcomes you got. I guess just like to, to wrap things up here, I want to return to the, the last time we had you on the show, which is to discuss, discuss uh, the Jakarta method. And again, like back to the protests that you were at on Saturday, these are protests 
about a horrific campaign of extermination in the Gaza right. Strip. The Indonesian example is probably one of the most successful genocides of the 20th century in that, mm-hmm. like, they basically totally got away with it. I, I mean, like, I don't know if I have a question here. I'm just like, I, as someone who studies, like, state violence and has done a lot of, like, really in-depth reporting about, like, the, the horrors carried out by the Indonesian government on uh, communists or trade unionists, Chinese immigrants, I, how, do you, how do you see that in the context of what Israel is doing to Gaza right now and, like, people's reaction against it? And... And the very real possibility that they'll be also be totally successful with it. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, I think a couple there's a couple ways to answer the question. One is like that book, The Jakarta Method. And like, thank you again for having me on three years ago. Like it was it was quite like interesting and like important to like have that conversation with you guys then is about like the construction of the global system we have, like the rules based international order that we got after, you know, after the end of the Cold War. And I think like in moments like this, you see what the rules really are. Right. And like when the Jakarta yeah. came out, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times being like, I think it's the, the headline was like the, the liberal uh, international order was built with blood. And like, you know, people like in the global south, people in the Arab world, they, they kind of know what the rules are. But it becomes like horrifyingly obvious what they really are in a moment like this, that um, it's different for you if you are allied with the United States. You can get away with things that would often lead to uh, regime change operations happening very quickly in your country if you were not allied with the United States. And uh, and then, like, the other thing that, you know, I thought was, like, quite insightful is, like, Daniel Aldana Cohen, I don't know if you know him, he wrote a, a book about, like, Green New Deal. He's, like, a sociologist at Berkeley. But he, like, posted some, like, a, a, a brief thing online where he's, like, um, I was born to a Jewish father and a Guatemalan mother. And he talks about what happened in Guatemala in the 1980s, like, the genocide that was carried out um, by the, you know, Reagan-backed dictatorship. And he says, once a state sets out to eliminate an entire political structure, all ba- boundaries dissolve. Anyone can be marked for death. And then he he related this back to, like, you know, the experiences of his family and then ultimately to, to my first book. So, like, you know, I think both what's happening now in Gaza and, and uh, the second book that I wrote happen in the particular type of global order that was constructed by the events of the Jakarta Method in the very particular type of world order shaped by imperialist violence. And like, yeah, again, this happens throughout so many of the actual protest events is that this becomes clear. Um, but unfortunately, it becomes clear once more in moments like this. Yeah, I mean, like if the, the sort of rules-based international order of American hegemony means we get to decide who can commit genocide and who, who can't, and who, for which that is a red line for us. But like we hear more and more now about the rise of a multipolar world. And if the if the unipolar world was created through things like the Jakarta method, I mean, does that augur well for the rise of a multipolar world? Or like, will, will the United States and its allies continue to uh, reassert the Jakarta method to like hold on to this unipolar model and in, in uh, as a way to stave off any kind of uh, actual competition or ad, or an adversarial, you know, like any kind of countervailing power in terms of the rise of China and other major countries in the world? Well, historically, historically, empires act very, very poorly in moments like this, right? Like, is that called the Thucydides trap? I mean, that might be a slightly different thing. But historically, empires react very violently to a perceived loss of power. Like when they when they start to sense that, oh, you know, uh, time is not on our side, we're, you know, power is slipping away, they often react very horribly and sort of either start wars or use um, extraordinary measures to try to hold on to that power often ultimately failing but it's like often a quite bad time so like i think yeah i think two both sides of that um equation are really important like on the one hand the united states is experiencing relative decline so it's not as, as powerful it was 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago and it will be probably less powerful in 10 years from now than it is right now but it is still by far the richest and militarily most ferocious country to ever exist and this is like, I know that scares me because if the United States, you know, if the people in the United States realize, OK, well, all these countries are beating us on uh, the economic front. But what terrain do we have the advantage on? Oh, well, we have the most guns. We have more guns than anywhere that's ever existed. Uh, maybe we could shift the terrain to the military confrontation because that's where we might win. And that that worries me uh, <laughs> uh, that the shift to a more multipolar world could be marked by like U.S reaction against the inevitable, but also like, you know, in countries, you know, countries like Brazil very, very loudly are like pushing for 
multipolarity because like, again, just like everything, you know, just like a lot of the, you know, quote unquote lessons that come out of the book, if you just like blow up the existing order and then hope for a new one to emerge from the ashes, just like magically appear as better, you often will be very disappointed by who actually constructs a new order. So what Lula is trying to do is to try to like act actively reconstruct the global system in a way which is going to be as beneficial to South America as possible. Because like, you know, the shift to a multipolar world could go a lot of different ways. It could go all kinds of, it could go sideways, upways, up, it could go sideways, upwards, downwards. So I think like the thing is, like anything else, is to act upon it, analyze it carefully and see how you can make the best of it. Vincent Bevins, I want to thank you for your time. The book is If We Burn, in stores now. We'll have a link uh, to check it out in the show description. But Vincent, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right. Uh, cheers. Uh, until next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> all right. Thanks. 